You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. Last few weeks, we've kind of been really focusing on Matthew chapter 24 through uh, 25. And we've been talking about the only way that we can really rightly and accurately interpret Matthew chapter 25 is we've got to go back and start there at the beginning in Matthew chapter 24. Because Matthew chapter 24 through 25 is one continuous um, one teaching, one thought. And you cannot do justice, you cannot do accuracy to Matthew chapter 25 without really understanding and applying Matthew chapter 24. In Matthew chapter 24 through 25, in those two chapters, Jesus was preparing and instructing his people how to walk in victory and power during the coming tribulation period in the last days. Now, as we've discussed these last couple of weeks, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus is describing the signs, the indicators that we should be looking for that would indicate his second coming is imminent. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time uh, discussing that since I've done that extensively the past two Sundays. So let me just kind of surmise this very quickly by saying that the signs Jesus points to there in Matthew chapter 24 are signs we are all too familiar with. They are signs that have been occurring upon the earth since the fall of mankind. Wars, rumors of wars, famine, earthquakes, pestilence, uh, persecution of believers, plagues, many other uh, disasters. And Jesus says, when these signs begin to occur, and they begin to occur closer and closer together, um, and they kind of uh, increase in intensity... Um, as all of that kind of moves together, increasing in intensity, closer and closer together, Jesus said that is a sign that his second coming is uh, very, very close. And as we've kind of said throughout this, it is going to be a time of the greatest revivals. It is going to be a time of the greatest awakening we've ever seen across this globe. But it'll also be a time... Um, where we will see some of the greatest evil, where there will come what the Bible describes as that great falling away. And again, all of that is gonna occur as, as the time of Jesus' second coming draws closer and closer. As all of these events unfold there in Matthew 24, Jesus goes on in Matthew 25 to describe what the kingdom of God will look like in that time frame. It doesn't look exactly like that right now because the signs and indicators mentioned there in Matthew chapter 24 have not come in their fullness yet. They've not yet reached their climax. But all of these signs come upon the earth, Jesus said, it'll be like childbirth, more and more intense and closer and closer together. And when that happens, Jesus says, then in that time, at that moment, this is what the kingdom of God will be comparable to. So I want to pick up where we left off last week. And I want to just begin again by reading the parable of the 10 bridesmaids there in Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse, 13, uh, verse 1 through 
through 13. Then, and that's where we said, then kind of links it to what was said prior to that. That is Matthew chapter 24. Then, when all of these signs have reached their climax, the kingdom of heaven will be likened to ten bridesmaids who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps, but the other five were wise enough to take along extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, they were aroused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. All the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. Then the five foolish ones asked the others, Please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to a shop and buy some for yourselves. But while they were gone to buy oil, the bridegroom came. Then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. The door was locked. Later, when the other five bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. Now, let me just again quickly, we kind of got started on this. I want to just talk about what each element represents. Again, the bridesmaids represent born-again believers. They are all ten saved, albeit five are foolish, five are wise. Now, I want to stop here, and I want to clarify this term, bridesmaid. And why we as believers, you got to understand and we've got to come to terms with this identity of being bridesmaids because it is a very familiar and often used paradigm in the New Testament. As the second coming of Jesus Christ comes nearer and nearer, there will be an increase, there will be a greater unfairness folding and understanding of this revelation of Jesus as the bridegroom God. This is part of what Jesus is conveying here in Matthew chapter 25. Now, one of the challenges we face in using this term bridesmaids, this vocabulary of bridegroom and bride of Christ in referring to Christ's relationship with his church are the barriers it creates, particularly with men. Men, listen, please. It's important to understand this biblical message and identity of Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. And we need to understand that that terminology, when, when we are referred to, particularly men, as the bride of Christ, it transcends gender. It goes beyond gender. Women are referred to, they are included in the term sons of God, okay? And most women don't have a problem with that. But guys, we tend to have a problem when we are expected to embrace the terminology bride of Christ. Now, both of these terms, sons of God 
and bride of Christ, they transcend gender. They go beyond sexuality in that it is describing an extremely unique position of privilege and calling of standing before God. Now again, most women do not struggle, nor do they shun the idea of being called or referred to as sons of God because they do not see that as a call to be less feminine. Often, however, let's be honest, guys, we do struggle with referring to ourselves as the bride of Christ because we wrongly conclude that it is about gender sexuality, and therefore we interpret it and we feel less masculine. Much the same thing when I use the word intimacy. Some of you guys, you just repel from that because you think of it in, yeah, you can tell I'm getting close to toes, right? Because when most men hear the word intimacy, you know what it triggers? Sex. And so when we talk about intimacy with God, we kind of go somewhere where God never intended for us to go with that. So, so what I'm going to do today is a gift to you men. I'm not going to use that word anymore today. I'm going to talk about friendship because you'll have an easier time embracing what I'm saying when I talk about being a friend of God rather than intimate with God, okay? Because for most guys, that's the image that comes to mind when we think of ourselves as the bride of Christ. That's what you were laughing at, right? Okay. Lori got a little bit ahead of me. But that is, that's the image most of us kind of think when, when we think of that term, bride of Christ. Again, it is crucial, so important. When we hear the term bride of Christ, you cannot think of it, you cannot apply it in terms of gender, and we must not sexualize the term. But rather, we need to see it, we need to understand it, and we need to apply it for what it truly is. And again, it is a unique privilege. It is a unique position. It is a, it is a divine standing before God and an unprecedented call to friendship with God. When properly understood through the lens of Scripture, this term, bride of Christ, it does not, now get this, guys, it does not undermine or question a man's masculinity. It establishes it. It does not undermine or question your masculinity. It will establish it. Again, this invitation to a deeper relationship, a deeper friendship with God is nothing new. Let me just give you a couple of examples of, of manly men who understood, who pursued, who really functioned. They kind of lived their life in this reality and, and this position of deep, passionate friendship with God. First example is King David. David was one of the Bible's greatest warrior kings. I mean, you could describe David as a man's man. He was a fighter. 
and yet he was open, he was passionate, he was unrelentless in his love, his pursuit, his friendship with God. Many of the Psalms David writes there in the Old Testament, they were kind of just testimonies of God's desire for him, of God's passionate fascination, of, of David's, uh, again, just his fascination with God's beauty, God's character. And, and David, he would often just be mesmerized by the, by the ways God moved. And David was one of the foremost students of God's emotions he studied the heart, the emotions of God, and many of the Psalms are a reflection of what he discovered in that pursuit. One example is Psalm 27, verse four. One thing I have asked from the Lord, that I shall seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O God, I shall seek. And this is just, again, one example of the many psalms that flowed from a heart that was in love with God, uh, from someone who just could not get enough of God. And it was this passion of David for God that earned him this reputation as a man after God's own heart. One of David's lifelong passions and desires was to deeply know and to experience the depths and the emotions of God. David was both a fierce warrior and a fierce worshiper. He could pursue and kill his enemies one day and just dance wildly and unabandonedly before the Lord the next day. He's like Rambo one day, Fred Astaire the next. <laughs> King David. The Apostle John's another example of a man who was passionate in his love for God, his friendship with God, referred to as the, the son of thunder. Man, doesn't that sound like a, just a, a great manly name? Son of thunder. It's a nickname that Jesus gave to him because it denoted uh, John's very volatile, his loud, his brash, his very aggressive personality. And yet this is the same John who's also described in John 13, 23 as the one whom Jesus loved. John was the one who would lay his head on the breast of Jesus and then later ask Jesus, should we call down fire to consume our enemies? John could be that warrior, fighter one moment and that tender lover of Jesus, the next. John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, was this fiery prophet whom Jesus referred to uh, in Matthew eleven eleven as one of the greatest men ever born of a woman. This same fiery prophet also recognized and he identified the voice he heard in the wilderness as the bridegroom God. John understood this. And he said it was that voice of the bridegroom God that brought him great joy. John the Baptist was not just fire and brimstone preaching. He was also someone who was open, passionate, and aggressive in his love for God. So here you have three men 
who understood, pursued, and experienced the reality of not only being lovers of God, but also seeing themselves, understanding themselves through the lens of the bridal message and identity, and not allowing that to undermine their masculinity, but rather allowed it to strengthen it and to establish it. Men, we do not need to be ashamed. We do not need to shun or back away from pursuing and experiencing passionate love and deeper friendship with God. It doesn't make us less manly. It deepens and establishes who God created us to be as men. Can I get an amen from you guys? This is the good news. This is good news. Oftentimes here, Pastor Jeff, get us to the good news. This is good news. If it's not good news to you, it's because you're probably not where you need to be in your walk and your relationship with God, and that's on you. Amen? Yep, not as big of an amen, but it <laughs> equally a great truth. So when we refer to our being the bride of Christ and Jesus being our bridegroom God, it is one of the ways by which we are called to see, to experience, and to walk in the kingdom of God. So as the bride of Christ, we are called and invited to experience God's deep heart, his passionate emotions. And there's no relationship of greater friendship and intensity than that of a bridegroom and his bride. And as I said, as the time of Jesus' imminent return draws closer and closer, this bridal message, this concept this bridal paradigm will descend upon the church in greater depth and deeper revelation. This is part of the message of the parable of the ten bridesmaids there in Matthew 25, 1 through 13. It's experiencing more fully our relationship with Jesus as the bridegroom God. So that's a little detour that I took. Now here's the problem. Every time I use that terminology, bridegroom, I can't go into that kind of an explanation. That's all I'll ever do. So it's important for us to begin to understand that, to begin to walk in that, so when we hear that, we go back and we say, ah, yes, I know what he means by that. I know what the scriptures mean by that. So the bridesmaids here in Matthew chapter 25, they refer to born-again believers. They're all saved, albeit five are foolish and five are wise. The lamps represent their ministries, their spiritual influence, which again is to reveal and to manifest God's light and his presence to others. The oil in this parable represents the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit in the life of that born-again believer. And you see in the parable the one glaring difference between the wise and the foolish bridesmaids was the amount of oil each one had. Now, the wise bridesmaids, we talked a little bit about this last week, they had plenty of oil, indicating that they were abundantly filled. They were adequately prepared. They were deeply connected to the bridegroom who is Jesus through the Holy Spirit. It is out of that deep abiding friendship and connection with God 
that they were flowing powerfully in ministry and spiritual influence. That's the good news. That's good news. If you are part of the wise bridesmaids, that is good news. The foolish bridesmaids were short of oil in that they lacked the depth, they lacked the connection, they lacked the friendship in their relationship with the bridegroom. So instead of their ministry coming from the power, the presence of the Holy Spirit, by virtue of their, of their friendship with the bridegroom Jesus, they were operating basically out of their own strength, their own power, their own abilities, and they fell woefully short. Verse six says that at midnight they were all awakened by a cry. Uh, they were roused by the shout, look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. Now the midnight hour, again, it represents the time just before the second coming of Christ. This is not the actual physical appearance of Jesus Christ. It's simply telling us that the time is closer now than ever. So the midnight shout, they begin to cry out, the bridegroom, he is coming. It, it is imminent. He is on his way now more than ever. And they're all awakened by that cry. The wise bridesmaids who put their relationship, we talked about this last week, they're the ones who put their relationship with God ahead of their ministry and serving. They had enough oil of friendship, enough oil of connection, of relationship to go and to be used and useful of God. Again, that's good news. If you are the wise bridesmaids, again, you're gonna have enough oil, enough power, enough connection that, that God is gonna be able to, to use you. You will be useful to the plans, the purposes that God has in that moment, in that hour. The foolish bridesmaids, they were the ones who put their ministry, their serving ahead of relationship with God. They lacked the needed oil of friendship. They did not have the necessary connection with God. And they were found lacking and not useful for God's purposes in the unfolding of those end times described there in Matthew chapter 24. Only the wise ones who put their relationship with God ahead of their ministry, they are the only ones that will be used and useful of God. They will be a part of what God is doing in the final moments leading up to the second coming of Jesus. The foolish bridesmaids, they wanna be used. They wanna be useful. They wanna be able to flow in, 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 in influence. They wanna be able to have spiritual impact. But because they put their ministry, their serving ahead of their friendship, their relationship, their connection with God, they will not be used, they will not be useful to God. And again, it's good news, bad news, you decide. Which are you? Which are you? And that, that's, that's the challenge that Jesus gives us. That's why in verse seven through eight, the foolish born again believers, they come to the wise bridesmaids and they say, give us some of your oil. Give us some of your connection. Give us some of your relationship. Give us some of your friendship, your connection, your, your spiritual impact. Give us some of that 
because we are lacking. And they say there in verse eight, give us some of your oil for our lamps, our ministries, our spiritual influence has gone out. In other words, their ministry was unprepared and failing. Now the response of the wise, wise bridesmaids is simply gonna be this, we can't give you. We can't give you the oil of friendship. We can't give you the oil of connection. We can't give you the oil of spiritual influence with God. You have to go and get it yourself. I can't take any of the friendship, any of the depth, any of the connection that I have attained with God and give it to you. You have to develop that with God yourself. That's the point. I can't give you my salvation. I can't give you my righteousness. You have to go to God and get it yourself. That's the whole point. So the foolish bridesmaids, remember, they're born again. They're saved. They're just foolish. They go out to pursue friendship and deepen their relationship with God, and they're trying to acquire the oil, the depth, the connection with God. And while they're gone doing that, it says the bridegroom comes, and those who were ready had the depth, the friendship, the connection, the spiritual impact with him to go into the wedding celebration and the door is shut. Now, this is where I wanna just spend a couple of moments on because this is where a lot of confusion and a lot of misapplication to this parable comes in. The bridegroom coming in this parable is not depicting the actual physical appearing of Jesus in the second coming. That is coming very, very soon. It's closer than ever. It's what the cries were all about. It's alerting, it's warning people for what is coming. Prior to Jesus' second coming, there is going to be a tremendous revival. I've talked about that. There's gonna come a great awakening. There is going to come this final outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And from that, there will come great miracles, healings, salvations. All of this is gonna come out of that final great move, that final great awakening of God. The bridegroom coming here is referring to that mighty presence, that move of God's spirit which will usher in, which will result in many people being saved, healed, delivered, and they are going to be made ready so that when Jesus' physical appearance comes, they are ready. Now the wedding feast referred to here in the parable is a well-known ancient Jewish custom. And those who are listening to Jesus would be very, very familiar when Jesus talks about the wedding feast. Because it involves celebrating a wedding over the course of several nights. Can you imagine that, Christy? Yeah. <laughs> Christy just had a son, got married a couple of weeks ago. We do it all kind of, you know, we'll do like a rehearsal Friday, you know, the, the, the wedding Saturday, you may do kind of a, a, you know, a brunch and they kind of come and open gifts and, you know, so we'll maybe do it kind of in, in two days. Now, in, in Jesus' culture, because, uh, you know, 
travel was more difficult um, in, in terms of going long distances. So if you were going to go to a family wedding and you had to travel a long distance, you didn't want to travel long distance, stay for one or two days, and then travel long distance back home. So oftentimes, especially in wealthy families, when they were doing a, a wedding feast or a wedding celebration, it would often occur uh, over you know, seven days. Um, and this is what Jesus is referring to, and the people who are listening to this were very, very familiar with that concept. Each night of the wedding celebration has a different aspect being celebrated or highlighted each night. So the wedding feast that Jesus refers to here is not the marriage supper of the Lamb referred to there in Revelation 19. That comes later. The wedding celebration is something that occurs over a period of time, and it is the mighty, powerful, glorious presence of God in the person of the Holy Spirit coming in greater and deeper waves with each passing. So as great and grand and glorious it is on day one, day two, it's even greater. On day three, it's even greater than day two. And there's just this progression. As each day progresses in, the, in this wedding feast, just as it would in a Jewish culture, so it does in a spiritual context, every day just gets greater and more glorious. There's just a, a much more powerful, greater, deeper move of God. And the wise bridesmaids are those who are ready to roll. They're, they're ready to be used. They're ready to be useful of God and to do all that God's called and equipped and prepared them to do. They have the needed friendship. They have the needed connection with God. They have been invited. They have been equipped, disciplined, to be a part of what God is gonna to begin to do through his spirit in that wedding feast over those, that, that next wave of time. That's why when the foolish bridesmaids in verse 11 come and ask the Lord to let him in, he responds in verse 12 by saying, I don't know you. And I want you to notice he doesn't say, Jesus doesn't say, I never knew you. He said, I don't know you. Big difference. In Matthew 7, Jesus is teaching about the difference between the saved and the unsaved in referring to those who have never made Jesus Lord of their life. Jesus says in Matthew 7, 23, I never knew you. Here in Matthew 25, 12, Jesus says, I don't know you. Again, there's a huge difference between not knowing someone and never having known someone. There are people I knew and went to high school with over 30 years ago. Many of them I have not seen or talked to since. It would be one thing for me to say I don't know them anymore versus for me to say I never knew them. I knew them 30 years plus years ago. But due to the passage of time, having no contact with them in those 30 plus years, it would be very accurate for me to say, I don't know them. Versus for me to say, I never knew them. Jesus used the statement, I don't know you, in reference to a lack of friendship, not a lack of salvation. 
Are you with me on that? Okay. The foolish bridesmaids, again, they're born-again believers. They just lacked the needed connection, relationship, friendship with God to be used, to be useful to him in these final, glorious, awesome waves and moves of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me just close this. I want you to notice something very, very interesting. Where do the foolish bridesmaids go? Where do they go? We don't know. Where didn't they go? They didn't go to Jesus. Do you notice that? They, they don't go to Jesus. They, they begin to go and look other places. Man, maybe I need to go and get more schooling. No. Maybe I just need to go home and read my Bible. No, no. Go to Jesus. Go directly to Jesus. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to Jesus. That's what they don't do. What started in foolishness ended in foolishness. The qualifier of this whole thing comes down to friendship. It comes down to connection. Either you have it or you don't. Either it's good news for you or it's bad news. You decide. If you have it, if you have that connection, that friendship to God, continue to pursue it. Continue to deepen it. Continue to go after him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your strength. If you don't have it, now, today, pursue it. Go after it. Begin to build in that relationship with God. Now is the time so that when that great final glorious move of the Spirit comes, you will be found useful and you will be used of God. The way to friendship with God is through, again, it's worship. It is meditating upon his word. It is obedience to his word. It is prayer. It is fellowship. There are many, many ways that we can pursue and deepen our friendship, our connection with God. And that's what he's after. He is after this opportunity now to prepare you uh, to help you to develop the giftings. This is part of what Bruce is gonna do afterwards. I encourage you to stay. Many of you here this morning, you have one of those five-fold giftings. God has placed within you the gifting of an apostle, prophet, evangelist, pastor, teacher. Don't negate that. Press in and, and say, God, teach me. If I'm in one of those offices, God, teach me, strengthen me.
bring me to, to, to be able to walk in greater measure in that office, in that calling. It's your spiritual gifts, allowing God, and we've taken people through that here. It's allowing God to use those gifts in you to serve one another. And when you're doing that, it says at the same time, you're glorifying God. Uh, all of this are ways that, again, we deepen and we strengthen, we mature that relationship, that connection with God. And when we do that, we will be found to be a part of the foolish uh, or the wise bridesmaids uh, there in Matthew chapter 25. Amen? Amen? Let's stand together this morning. We want to be those wise Bridesmaids. We want to be that mature body of Christ. We want to be those who are desirous of a deeper connection, a deeper friendship, a deeper relationship with you this morning. And so, Father, this morning we just come with open hearts, open spirit. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you again would just help us to lay aside, to cast aside, to throw aside anything that would hinder us in that connection, that relationship, that place of abiding with you. That as a jealous God, that you would burn away anything that would hinder that. And the Father, this morning, you would draw us by your Holy Spirit into that deeper place. That place of friendship. That place where, as Moses, when he would go into the presence of God, Scripture said that he spoke to you face to face as a friend would speak to a friend. That is intimacy, that's connection, that's friendship, that's what you're after, God. And so, Lord, whatever would stand in the way of that this morning, we ask, Father, that you would help us just to cast it aside. Push it out of the way. That we can freely, boldly, courageously come into your throne room of grace in our time of need. And we need you. We need you now more than ever. And we thank you for this greater love that through your broken body, the shed blood of Christ, you have made a way for us into your presence. And we receive that and we celebrate that this morning. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, because it is his broken body, his shed blood, that makes that possible, that makes that a reality. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org.